Good morning. Kurt Parker, it's good to be with you this morning. It's been a fun morning so far, and so I uh, enjoy uh, our time together. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16. And for those who'd like to be in an age-graded service downstairs, whether uh, their children be in that graded service through grade four, you can be dismissed from the service at this time. I'll follow the teachers into the foyer, and they will take you downstairs. Make sure you just remember to pick them up when you're all done, okay? We love them, and we want them to go home with you. Many years ago, in Russia, the Tsar decided to take away land belonging to some Jewish peasants. The peasants sent a plea to the Tsar that their land not be taken, but rather restored. And because of their persistence, the Tsar agreed to restore the land on the condition that one of them should debate and win against his great royal debater. This debater, who always represented the king, had never lost a debate, and he had an unusual characteristic. He never spoke a word. The debate was carried on by motions in pantomime. When word came to the little Russian Jewish village, they were crestfallen and discouraged. None of them would dare face the great debater until finally one fellow in the village said, well, we have nothing to lose by trying. I'll go and debate him. He was the town idiot, and the people sighed and threw up their hands in resignation, but he went anyway. On the arranged day, the great debater started first. He waved his arms widely in the air in broad circles and then sat down with a very smug and pleased expression on his face. The town idiot got up and with great vigor pointed with one finger to the palm of his other hand and the audience was astonished to suddenly see a crestfallen look come over the face of the great debater. And everybody knew from the expression on his face that he considered that he had lost the first round. He got up again, this time enthusiastically piercing the air with three fingers as if to say, three, three, three. And again, he sat down, smiled, looking very pleased until the town idiot got up and waved one finger in the air and pierced the air with that finger. Another crestfallen, discouraged look came over his face and he considered the second round lost. Standing on for the final round, he pulled out a loaf of bread and a glass of wine and solemnly partook of them. Then he sat down very smug. The town idiot then stood up, reached into a bag beside him, pulled out an apple, and started chomping on it, standing there as he ate it. The great debater stood up with despair on his face and threw his arms into the air, crying, I give up. I never met anyone so shrewd and wise as this gentleman is. He has beaten me on every round of the debate. The czar instantly told the town idiot to go back to the village with the, with the news that they could keep their land. And afterward, the czar summoned the great debater and said, what took place out there? I have never seen anyone so wise as this poor Jewish peasant, came the reply. I started the debate by waving my hands in the air to, as if to say, God is everywhere, God is everywhere. But immediately this Jewish peasant pointed to his palm as if to say, yes, but God is right here too. God is right here with me. And I had no answer for that. Then I held up three fingers to say, God is three, God is three. But the Jewish peasant was too smart for me. He held up one finger to say, yes. But he's also the one in three. God is one, and I had no answer for that. Finally, I stood up with the elements of the communion to show the Jewish peasant that Jesus Christ is Messiah, the complete sacrifice for all the world. But my opponent reached into his sack for an apple as though reminiscing of Eve and implying, yes, but I'm a sinner. I've sinned. I have partaken of what is forbidden. But the Lord's forgiven not only the whole world, but me. And I had no answer for that. He is a shrewd and wise man, and he won the debate fairly. Meanwhile, the peasant went back to his village and reported that he had won the debate. The people were thunderstruck, and they asked, 
How'd you do it? What took place at the debate? Well, the Jewish peasant said, the great debater waved his arms and said, you can't have your land. The czar is going to take it. But I pointed to my palm as though I had a deed there and said, but we have rights to this property. We have a deed to it. Then he stood up and flung his three fingers in the air, saying we had three days to get off his land. I told him we were not going to move one inch, not one inch, and I held up one finger. Then he reached into his pouch and pulled out his lunch and started eating. And I thought to myself, well, if he's going to have his lunch, I'm going to have mine too. And I reached into my bag and pulled out my lunch, and suddenly they all said I'd won the debate. I think one of the things, that's one of those joke grenades. That rolls out there and then later blows up, all right? You'll be sitting there, oh. I think one of the things we've noticed as we've worked our way through 1 Corinthians 16, and really in real life experience, I think, is there's a tendency to be unable to say effectively the things you need to say, and perhaps as well to be unable to understand correctly things other people are saying. Fortunately, because of the work the Holy Spirit has done in his word, the Apostle Paul has been able to communicate some very important and very wonderful things to this Corinthian church and on down to us. And these things let us see his heart and his passion for ministry. They also let us see some things about ministry that the Lord thinks is noteworthy. And we're going to see some more very, communi- very clearly communicated things today, Lord willing. And I invite you to open your Bibles this morning with me to the 16th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. This is a continued study. And we have come this morning to our last section of this chapter that we've given the handhold instructions. We just finished uh, Paul's plans for the future. That was what we called itinerary. Uh, and, and we saw what ministry looks like if it is the Lord's work, because Paul indicates that what he is doing is the Lord's work. So as we look at what he's doing, we can understand that what is going on there then becomes a model for what the Lord's work looks like. And we've had the opportunity really to examine all that in context, and if you've missed that, you can catch up with that study online. We also looked at the model for New Testament giving, really in verses 1 through 4, where Paul gives clear, careful instructions about the collection, and then that becomes a model for us about what New Testament collecting and giving looks like. And now we move into this last section of chapter 16, which really includes instructions, it includes special people, it includes greetings. It's easy to read rapidly over this closing part of the letter. Paul does this often in his letters. Uh, he, has, he talks about people. He gives some special instructions. Uh, he gives some greetings and commendation. He does all these things, and they're all very, very personal. It's easy to re- read through there rapidly and think, you know, what is, w- there's not much here for me. It's pieces, places that don't exist anymore, people that don't exist anymore. But again, as we read the word, what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? We understand that every word of God stands and is tested. And so he's put it here for, our pur- for purposes of our instruction and for our learning, and so we carefully look at it. We're going to see some guidance from him. We're going to see some commendation. We're going to see some acknowledgement from Paul, and those become models for us to understand how that's supposed to look and what ministry is supposed to look like. And then we're going to get to his final blessing at the end of chapter 16, and then he's finished with this letter. So let's read our passage for today. Pick up in verse 13. We'll read all the way through the end of the chapter. You can read along with me, if you will, uh, in the New American Standard. You can find that in the seat that's in front of you, or just reading your copy of God's Word. I'll give you verse cues and we'll keep together. Paul says this, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do, verse 14, be done in love. Verse 15, now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Verse 16, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Verse 17, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus 
and acacias because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. Verse 18. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. Verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you. Heartily in the Lord. And with the church that is in their house. Verse 20. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 21. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. Verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Verse 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. As you look back at the beginning of the passage, it starts with a series of five short, sharp imperatives by way of exhortation. 23 words in the New American Standard, but it could take us a little while just to get through them. They're so important, I think, to our walk with the Lord. And now, as we've certainly seen, some in the Corinthian church had shown a continuing immaturity in a number of things, and those things, of course, carry right down into the modern church. So the instruction that Paul has given is relevant today, just like it was in the first century. So he has a series of compelling requirements, really to redirect them to a better personal testimony and corporate testimony and success in the ministry, and a more fruitful outcome, perhaps, for the outcome of their life and their faith. Uh, because really, beloved, if our faith is to be believable, there must be behavior that flows out of that faith. I think that's a, just a very basic statement. We can say whatever we want about ourselves, but the behavior has to flow out of that faith for it to be believable to anyone else. Now look at verses 13 and 14, and we'll get as far as we can today. Paul says this, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now, if someone said to you, could you sum up behavior that flows out of faith, just kind of sum it up, I believe you could turn to this passage and you could make a good case. And so, as is our habit, let's look at what the Bible says, what does it mean by what it says, how does that apply to me, and this format then is not new for Paul, and we're going to see as we work our way through, I'll give you some illustrations, Paul does this all the time, he sums up behavior that flows out of faith. Just a few examples, you could certainly use 2 Corinthians 13, 11, as one of those places where Paul does that, he says, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be, of, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Finally, brethren, rejoice. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians, of course, rejoice always. But Paul says, rejoice, be mature. That's the idea. Be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And I think you could say, if you want to make a case, that sums up, that sums up behavior that flows out of faith. Towards the end of Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church, he says this. We just referred to it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, he says this. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I think you could sum up that this is behavior that flows out of faith. And I would also say that everybody's always looking for the will of God. That's what they say. What is the will of God for my life? Well, I would say that here it's clearly stated, isn't it? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Again, towards the end of his letter to the Galatians, he says this in Galatians 5.22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And again, I think you could make a case that this sums up behavior that flows from faith. It certainly are, these things certainly are the fruit of the Spirit and should be bore, obviously, 
and the life, and these are things that you should be praying about as you examine your own self daily, as Paul says, to see if you're in the faith. Or am I bearing these types of fruits? And certainly this sums up what the Christian life should look like, crucifying the flesh with its passions. If we live by the Spirit, which we have come to life by the Spirit of God implanted in us, then we also walk by the Spirit, which is a daily sanctification of bringing our actions and our thoughts in line with what the Word says. Same towards the end of Ephesians 6.10. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Again, if you could make a case that this sums up what, uh, the behavior that should flow out of faith. As you walk in the world, these are things that you should do. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Understand what the Lord thinks, what he says, how it's supposed to work its way out in your life. And work in that strength. Put on the full armor of God. All those things listed there. And Paul just sums up this, this action that flows out or this behavior that flows out of faith. And these verses, of course, are only summaries of the behaviors that flow out of faith. Paul was much more exhaustive in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9 and following. And he gave a bunch of single-sentence imperatives, and we looked at that at length several years ago. So we won't do it again. But as we said, as we studied that passage in Romans, there are things in that passage that you want to find in your life. And some of you may look at those things and say, you know, I don't see that like I should. And so by the power of the indwelling spirit, I submit my will to Christ, and I'm going to work on that part, see. And I would say the same thing about our current passage this morning. You may look at that passage and say, hey, I don't see that so much. And I need to see that because these are imperatives from Paul. And other parts you may look at and say, you know, praise God, I, I'm seeing this at work in my life, and I want to do it, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, even more. So as he encourages those believers in, Thessalon in the Thessalonica church, he says, I know that you're doing this, that we've instructed you, do so even more. And so you may find kind of a balance between those two, perhaps heavier on the doing side, and perhaps not so much in what you don't see, but obviously the Lord gives his word to, to be incorporated into our life, and so we want to see those things become part of it. And so as you honestly evaluate yourself, and, and remember, you know, life is a series of, of just, you know, walking along. There's some really highs in our Christian life. There's some really lows. So I would say as you repent of the extreme lows, which are in everyone's life, and as you give God credit for the highs, where you really want to find yourself as we study our passage today, where you want to see yourself is with these five things actively indicating your relationship to Christ, summing up, if you will, your relationship to the Lord. Let's start with the first one. Paul says in verse 13, he says, be on the alert. And so if you're a note taker on the back of your, of your bulletin, you'll see things uh, that can be filled in. You'll find them on, behind me on the screen. They'll be underlined, and that can help you have some takeaways if that's, if that's beneficial to your study. But Paul says, be on the alert. And this is to be watchful, be vigilant. Okay, and this, is in, this verb is in the present active imperative, a Gregor Uo. In this case, then, there's no contingency. There's no maybe you will or if this happens, you will. This is Paul giving the reality and the habit of the life of those who call themselves believers. This is in the imperative. It's a command from the Lord. And what's the command? What's the principle for our life? Here it is. Principle number one, be watchful, be vigilant in watching over your life and conduct. There's a great illustration of not doing that and messing that up in Matthew 24, verse 43. Jesus is talking and he says, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been, catch this, what's the next three words? On the alert. Okay, that's what Paul just said that every believer is supposed to be doing. That is the outflow of action related to knowing Christ as your Savior. He would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. That could be translated, his eyes would be open. And this is in the subjunctive. So in other words, 
if he would have, then this would have been the case. If he would have been watchful, if he would have known what hour the thief was coming, but he wasn't watchful. So it's the negative example. He would surely see what was happening. And the idea is to catch this, beloved. Being watchful is to perceive what you're supposed to see. Okay? Perceive what you're supposed to see. And we find that illustrated well if you just think about child rearing. Okay? So those of you who have little kids, you'll know this. Those of you who have kids or grown up, you remember this. Okay? When our children are young, and we take them on a walk with us, or we take them camping or whatever, a hike somewhere, we're always saying some form of this. Watch out for X, okay? Whatever you're doing, you just fill that in. Watch out for X, or look both ways before you cross the street, okay? Or, or um, be careful of whatever it is. And we're doing that constantly because you want them to perceive what they're supposed to see. When they're little, here's the question. Do they see the car coming quickly up the road? No. They just charge right out there. They see the car. They don't understand what they're seeing, and they just go, right? When they're little, do they perceive that the water in the river is deep and swift and the bank is slippery? They don't. And so you are constantly training them, and you want them to learn those things and a thousand other things to help them see what they need to be seeing, to perceive what they're looking at. And even when they get older and you start teaching them to drive. And, you know, people with younger children always ask me, because I'm on my third, they say this, is it scary teaching your child to drive? And I just say, not really, because I'm a firm believer in their instincts of self-preservation. In other words, I don't think they want to die. And so I'm pretty sure I'm not going to die. The problem is this, when they don't perceive they're about to die. Okay, right. When, when it's dark and they have a blinking yellow light and they're turning left in front of cars that are coming 50 miles an hour towards them, there's not enough time for them to go to, from point A to point B. And the worst part is, I'm the one who's going to die. Okay, so we're going to help them perceive what they're supposed to see and, and train them to recognize what's going on around them, what's happening, always being on alert and staying on their guard, right? And so then we say stupid stuff when, we, when they get older, like, be careful, right? And we're just kind of throwing that out there, a reminder, okay, you know, it's like, okay, dad, whatever, you know, you know on the way home, be careful, son, driving, oh, whatever, dad, of course I'm going to be careful. But it's just in your mind, you remember what it was like to teach them to see what they need to see, see? And growing up, I think about growing up, and I grew up in Arizona, far from towns, out on a ranch. And snakes were always a part of our life. So when I was young, you know, my dad would have to point out, because rattlesnakes of any variety are very camouflaged. You can look right at a bush. You can look right at anything as you're walking along. You may not see what you're supposed to see. And so this was always an action. My dad wanted me to see what I was looking at and perceive the danger. And so Paul gives that to the church. It's the very first thing he says as he's closing out his instructions to them. And here's the deal. It would just be foolish and naive to think that that isn't important or that that isn't the most important thing that you need to be doing is summing up your walk with the Lord. Jesus gave the same command to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe you didn't realize this, but remember, once he realized they were just going to fall asleep, he says this in Matthew 26, 41. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. So before he was just coming back and say, hey, can you not watch for me for an hour? I mean, can you not stay awake? I mean, I'm over here praying, please stay awake. And then he realizes they're just going to doze off. And so he comes back and he changes it a little bit. He says this, keep watching, that's be on the alert, praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus just says this, listen, beloved, a life habit of this type of shoddy watching and shoddy being on guard is going to result in disaster for you. See, Peter, who was there in the garden, 
and received that instruction from the Lord and heard that admonition from Jesus, put it this way in 1 Peter 5.8. He says this, be sober of spirit. In other words, that's, that's the, the way the scripture uh, it tells you to be self-controlled because to be drunk with wine or to be drunk is to not be in control of your spirit. So be sober of spirit, be self-controlled, be on the alert. There's, there's our words. Why is that, Peter? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be on the alert, Peter says. Jesus said, keep watching, be on the alert, and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Peter says, be sober of spirit and on the alert, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be watchful, Paul says. Be vigilant, Peter says, because living an unguarded life would undoubtedly ruin your testimony, beloved. There's no question about that. Catch this. Living an unguarded, in an unguarded state can put you in a place where you severely damage or ruin your marriage. Let's just be real. If you're living in an unguarded state in your private world, you are living at the edge of wrecking your marriage, okay? Because, beloved, affairs don't happen like the first day you thought about it, the next day you act on it. What are they, how does that happen? As you talk to people who failed in their ministries and failed in their marriages over the course of their life, they can call back to the, your mind as you talk with them years of being unguarded, years of accepting behavior and thought life that was inappropriate and not according to their walk with the Lord. And nobody saw it and just continued in a long line until finally they acted on it. But it was living continually in an unguarded state and not perceiving that what was going on there is going to cause you harm. See? So Paul says, be on the alert. Living in an unguarded state can place you in a position where you ruin your reputation in business. And you can do that over a very short period of time. As a believer, as you conduct your business, you can ruin your reputation. And perhaps Paul brings this up because he's dealing with a church that isn't aware of just how vulnerable it is. They had evaluated themselves pretty high on the scale of spirituality. And we know because we've gone through an entire letter that that actually was not the case. That how they evaluate themselves wasn't the issue. It's how they were compared to what the Word of God said. And Paul had spent 18 months with them, and later Apollos, who was a great speaker, was with them. And yet Paul still had to write and teach them even the most basic things about their walk with the Lord. And just like children who are never in more danger than when they are unaware of the danger that they're in, in the section of this letter we're studying, that has to do with the church avoiding Israel's mistakes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And so there needs to be then this awareness that you may not be aware of every obstacle and every trick the evil one and every crafty thing men and women who don't know the Lord do. And so you have to be aware and watchful. That him who stands take heed that he doesn't fall. And it just implies that there is a watchfulness and intensity about examining the life and realizing you may not know every obstacle that's going to cause you problems, but as you commit yourself to being alert and being watchful and time in the word each day and comparing that to the holy standard and understanding what the Lord's thoughts are on certain subjects, you will find as the Lord works through his word, he sanctifies you and begins to let you be able to identify the things that will cause you trouble. Because some of those right now, beloved, to be honest, are just like snakes in the desert. They are, they are camouflaged to you and sit right in your lap and you're not watching for them. And so Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And that stand puts us into our next section of chapter, or chapter 16, verse 13. Look there. Paul commands us. He says, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. 
Again, present active imperative of the verb steko. So this is to be the case. This is not a contingency. If you do this, then do this, or please do this, or may you do it. This is to be the reality. It's supposed to be the habit of your life as a command from the Lord. And that is to be fixed in a spot, unable to be moved. And then three words in the English really modify that command for us. And those words are in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. So what's the faith? Well, the faith is the conviction that God exists. He's the creator. He's the ruler of all things. He's the one who gives to us eternal salvation through Christ. And that's Jesus who is the Messiah who through him we obtain salvation by his death and his resurrection. You can put that in any order you'd like and you can modify that a little bit. But that's the faith. That's what we embrace. Stand firm in the faith. And so understanding those definitions, what is the command? What's the principle for our life? Well, here it is. Be fixed unable to be moved away from what you know to be true from what the word says or from the word of God. So be on the alert, start seeing and perceiving what you need to perceive and see so that you avoid temptation, you avoid the downfall that comes from not being aware that you're about to fall and be fixed and unable to be moved away from what you know to be true from the word of God. And again, what does, then it's, what does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And then making that application and assimilating those things in your life. A number of years ago, we went through the book of Daniel. And, and this book is full of great examples of this principle. But one of my favorites is of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you remember this story. You've been with us. Uh, you, you know that we went through this. But you can turn here, if you'd like, Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. I'd like you to do that, if you would. Daniel 3, 1. Just hold your finger here and turn. Daniel 3, 1. Now here, Nebuchadnezzar the king, uh, you know, made an image of gold. You remember this, right? The height of which was 60 cubits, that's verse 1, and it's with six cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, when a story starts like that, it can't bode well for believers in the true God in the kingdom, okay? Because you know where that's going. So here's a big old statue made of gold. It's 90 feet tall, and uh, it's set up on the plain of Dura for everybody to see. And so it was, you know, that Neb is pretty full of himself, at this point, and he commanded some music to be played. It's all very nice and, you know, very civil, and it's a nice party and all that, and the music's going to be played, and, and then he commands everybody in the kingdom to bow down to this 90-foot-tall statue, but you know this story, so you know who didn't do it, and that's the three amigos, okay? They're not doing that. So they don't, they don't bow down, and everybody sees that, and, of course, he sees them standing straight. Everybody else is bowing down, of course. They all run and tell the king a bunch of tattletales, and now there's no record of a command to renounce Judaism, okay? It doesn't say, you shall renounce the true God and bow down to me. It doesn't say that. There's no record of that, okay? It doesn't say Jehovah God isn't God and Nebuchadnezzar is God or anything like that. It doesn't say anything like that. It just says, you bow down when the music plays. But everybody around knew what was up, and they tell the king. Now look at verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have dis disregarded you, and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Now look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and, and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Verse 15. Now if you're ready... At the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, all kinds of music, to fall down, worship the image that I have made, 
very well. Now, just as a pause right here, he doesn't give them a chance to answer. He just assumes that this is easy enough to do. It was just an oversight on their part. Just bow on down. We'll get right on back to the party, okay? And then he says this. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, verse 17, whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He's able to deliver us from the fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand one way or another. Verse 18, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now pause right there and you can flip back to our passage. Now what does Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 and 5 say about the situation? Well, you shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water or under the earth and you shall not worship them or serve them. Now what does the Bible say? It says that. What does it mean by what it says? I think it's pretty clear, right? I mean, it, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room. If something's set up to be worshipped that isn't God, you don't worship it. No, you don't make any graven image. You don't make any image even of God himself to bow down to it. But you certainly don't make about, you bow down to anything that's been made in the image of man. Now, how did that apply to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, I think they got that right, don't you? They do exactly what the word said, and they didn't do it. And of course, the Lord went on and delivered them from Nebuchadnezzar's hand because he can do what he wants and like he wants to do it. But I think the point for us is, and, this is, and the reason why I think it was great that we came to this point as it coincided with our baptism, is this. As he talked to the teens and the adults who were baptized today, listen, we live in a time period where people want us to bow down and accept all kinds of things, Okay? And they're not necessarily requiring us to renounce Jesus. Just to add a bunch of stuff to our okay behavior or no big deal behavior list. Just like they did in first century Corinthian church. And to that, Paul speaks to us from this letter and he says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 27, Paul says this. Again, conduct that indicates faith. Only Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you and that you are, catch this, standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them and salvation for you, and that too is from God. So in other words, there's all kinds of stuff that can be added that you need to bow down to, and and Paul says, listen, just conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And no matter whether I come and see you and encourage you or whether I'm absent from you, I just hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And don't be alarmed at what's going on around you. Because it's just a sign, as they contradict what I say, it's just a sign of destruction for them. And then he kind of sums it up in Philippians 4.1. And he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, catch it, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Listen, there are always going to be opponents, and the world is always whispering, bow down, it's no big deal. I mean, 
If we would just put away, this is what the world says, just put away some of the divisive doctrines of the church and just focus on love, everything would be better. That's what we hear, right? Just bow down, all that instruction really is very antiquated anyway. I mean, come on. I mean, that's not how the world works anymore. I mean, the Bible is so racist and sexist and homophobic. I mean, just bow down for crying out loud. Just stop with all of that and focus on Jesus, the homeless teacher who loved everybody and everything's going to be better, see? Just bow down and we'll get on with the party. Jude has to address this very thing. Here's what he says, beloved. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation. So his letter was initially about what? It's about salvation. He was going to talk about the grace of Christ and how he, how he paid the price and all that kind of thing and how you could respond. He wanted to talk about our common salvation, how uh, that works its way out in our testament and all that. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. In other words, I wanted to talk to you about a common salvation. Instead, I realized I really had to encourage you to contend for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly people who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master, Lord and Jesus Christ. Jude says, I would have loved to encourage you in our common salvation and talk about the grace of Jesus. Instead, I found I couldn't because it's being corrupted. And people are bowing down to sexual immorality. And when they do that, they're denying, uh, that's the Greek word, our new menoe, they're, they're rejecting the master of our salvation. There's, there's, there was never salvation if the one who said they were saved is rejecting the commands of the Savior. See, that's it. I wanted to talk to you about our common salvation. What I, instead I had to do is tell you to contend for the faith because some people are corrupting it. Those people aren't even saved because no one who's saved who rejects what the master says about anything, see? So just contend earnestly for the faith. Don't bow down. And so Paul says, contend for the faith. Paul says, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. There are some things that sum up what it means to be a believer. And two of them are, be on the alert Stand firm in the faith. And next week we'll see, act like men. Be strong and let all you do be done in love. And we're out of time today, so we're going to stop right there. But I'll just tell you, beloved, you know, I, I was excited to bring this message to you because it ministered so much to me this week as I studied this passage. I think that as we think about summing up what it looks like to be a believer, it's subjective. It's not subjective. We're in a time period where we, we think that what it means to be a believer is just self-defined. Paul contradicts that so many times through the word of God, and Jesus as well. We just see over and over again this very clear definition of what it means to act on what we know about our salvation. These things are to be clear as part of what we do. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith of the first two. Very important, I think, as we... Think about what it means to walk with the Lord. As we talk about our, those who are new to the faith, those who are new baptism today, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Because those things are very important to the Lord. They make it clear to the world what the gospel really looks like. Because if it's going to have any credibility at all in your testimony, beloved, there's going to have to be some actions that are different from what the world does. You bow with me and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Thank you today, Father, for an opportunity to be in the Word. We thank you today for uh, the blessing of starting out with 
those following your blessed son in baptism, committing their way before the church in a very bold statement, they are followers of Jesus. Thank you for that. Thank you for uh, doing your work of redemption in their heart. Thank you for still changing people through your gospel. They've confessed with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, believed in their heart, God raised him from the dead, Romans 10, 9. Lord, we're so grateful for that. We're, so, we're grateful to see that at work here. We pray that you'll continue that work. Help us to be carrying out that great commission where we are giving out that gospel, making disciples. It's your work in us, of course, as we spread the gospel. Your work does the work. It's just us being obedient, you working through that obedience and carrying out by your Holy Spirit a drawing of those who are coming to faith. And Lord, I pray that we'll be about that. Each one of us, as we walk out the door, we recognize we're headed into our own mission field, uh, spheres of influence that we have alone, perhaps in all the congregation here at Berean, you have that spe specific sphere. Lord, I pray that we'll be bold, contend earnestly for the faith, uh, not bow down to things that uh, perhaps would uh, the world would suggest that uh, are antiquated about what we understand the master has said, instead holding firm to what the Bible says, what does it mean by what it says, how does that apply? Lord, I pray that that objective stance and understanding of those things will be part of our life. Thank you again for the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for the time of prayer. Thank you for the time of giving of our material things. Thank you for the opportunity that we've had to worship you in song and for the time that we can worship you in the reading of your word and the doing of it. You've exalted it even up to you, equal to your own name. Every word of God is tried. Lord, thank you. Help us to value it more than gold and silver and precious stones, Lord. I pray that we'll make it the most important thing we do each day as we begin each day walking with you as a time in your word. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.